0: Henry V. Act 3, scene 1. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more, or close up the wall with our English dead. In peace, there's nothing so becomes a man as modest stillness and humility. But when the blast of war blows in our ears, then imitate the action of of the tiger, stiffen the sinews, summon up the blood, disguise fair nature with hard-favored rage. Skipping down a few lines. Be copy now to men of grosser blood and teach them how to war. And you, good yeomen, whose limbs were made in England, show us here the metal of your pasture. Let us swear that you are worth your breeding, which I doubt not. For there is none of you so mean and base that hath not noble luster in your eyes. I see you stand like greyhounds in the slips, straining upon the start the game's afoot. Follow your spirit, and upon this charge, cry God for Harry, England, and St. George. Those are the words of a leader who's motivating his troops onward into battle, into harm's way. They're pushing towards that excruciating moment where they break through the gap of the walls of Harfleur. Throughout history, strong leaders have made those moving speeches leading their soldiers into battle. And they stand on the brink of victory or defeat. They are moments away from either life or death, they recognize the crucial importance of the moment. It's the moment where their followers are either going to flee in terror, or they are going to purposefully, courageously, relentlessly attack what lies ahead. Are we marching towards something? Is there something coming in our future? How do we feel about it? Jesus and his disciples, they were marching into battle. They were approaching their date with destiny. The end was near, and Jesus wanted to make sure that they were ready. He wanted them to understand that as dark as the night sky might become, as heart-wrenching as the pain may be, as reckless and out of control as everything might seem to be, be, be becoming, there was a purpose to the pain This was all part of the plan. You know, the march towards Jerusalem, it wasn't done in ignorance or naivety. It was on purpose. It had to be done. It was bigger than self-preservation. It was more important than living your best life now. It was more than just about living for the here and now or making the most of the time that you have left. It's about accomplishing that eternal mission in securing an everlasting victory. This was crucial for his inner circle, the 12, to understand. And it's critical for us to remember as we march on toward another monumental day. Why is that? Why does it make a difference? Well, that's the question we're gonna ask ourselves this morning and as the hour grows late, and as the skies grow dark. Let's look at what Jesus knew about the road that he was walking down and consider why that is important for us, how we live our lives, how we think our thoughts, and talk our words in 2021. Would you turn with me to the book of Mark Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, and we're going to be reading verses 32 to 34. Would you stand with me as we read from God's Word this morning? Mark, chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, there are some people who claim that the events that were coming came as a surprise to Jesus, that he didn't expect them. He didn't anticipate the tragic end that would befall him. That I, I have to assume they haven't read the Bible Throughout his ministry, Jesus directed people to what was coming. In Mark chapter 2, verse 19, he said, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in that day. Or, or Luke 12, verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Luke 17, 24. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. A storm was coming. And Jesus was intimately aware of it. And not only did he allude to it, But he gave the specifics. In fact, we have that recorded. Three separate occasions we find Jesus shares the details in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, in 9.31, and then here in 10.32. And each of these is verified by the other Gospels, by Matthew's Gospel, by Luke's Gospel. There's no denying that Jesus predicted what was going to happen to him. He's among a long list of people who have predicted the future. Nostradamus predicted the great fire of London in 1666. Jules Verne imagined people going to the moon in 1865. Nikola Tesla foretold of Wi-Fi and mobile phones in 1909. Then there were those people who predicted Y2K. We won't talk about that. Jesus' predictions were different, though. They weren't just educated uh, guesses. They were based on what had already been prophesied about him and what he knew from his perfect, all-seeing, omniscient knowledge. Our our passage today says this. They They were on the road ahead. Going up to Jerusalem, Jesus walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Jesus and his company, they're heading up to Jerusalem by way of Jericho. They had crossed the Jordan River, and now they're in Israelite territory again. We read that Jesus is walking on ahead. He's the leader of this band of astonished and fearful followers. He's in the front. He's pushing on. He's pressing in towards the goal while his followers are getting more and more hesitant. They're lingering behind. His steps were filled with determination. Theirs with discomfort. His with a confident sense of destiny. Theirs with confusion and uncertainty. Why are we doing this, Jesus? Why, there's danger ahead. Why, why are we going that way? We don't, we don't get everything you've been talking about, but we're not stupid. We can, we can tell that something is coming here. There's a change in the wind. There's a disquieting high, sky on the horizon here. Why the reluctance? Why the reticence? Why are they astonished? Why are they afraid? Well, because Jesus had been preparing them. He wanted them to be prepared for what was coming. As we mentioned before, Jesus had not been withholding about future events. Now, the Jewish people, they were not unfamiliar with the Old Testament. They knew that a Messiah was coming. But as we mentioned before in our study of Mark, (laughs) years and years of interpretation and probably some misinterpretation led to confusion and misunderstanding as to what the Messiah was actually going to look like and what he would actually do. Jesus had been setting this and all kinds of other things straight throughout his teaching ministry. He set them straight on what it meant to, to live in a holy, God-pleasing way. In Matthew 5, 21 through 28, he gave them a, a new paradigm for anger. Do you remember this? You've heard it was said to those of, those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. He did the same for issues of lust. Matthew 5, 27, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. All sorts of things. He set them straight on divorce, on speaking the truth, what that even means, on taking revenge, on loving your enemies, on keeping tradition versus keeping God's commandments, and even on worship. But perhaps the most important thing of all, he set them straight on what it meant for him to be the Messiah. Luke 18.31 tells us that he told his inner circle, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. There was to be no mistake that that everything that was going to happen to him was the fulfillment of promises that God had made through the prophets of old. So he would have spoken to them about passages like Psalm 22. See if this sounds familiar to any of you, Psalm 22 verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the... Words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. I have to believe that when Jesus actually mouthed these words from the cross, bells and whistles and alarms are going off in his followers' minds, I know what he's referring to there, verses 6 and 8 of Psalm 22. They predict the mockery that the Messiah would endure. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Psalm twenty-two sixteen 16 says this. For dogs encompass me. A company of evil do- doers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. And this was written before crucifixion was even a thing in Israelite history. And yet here it is clearly pointing to what was going to happen to Jesus. Look, look at the detail in Psalm twenty-two fourteen. 14. I am poured out like water. All my bones are, are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shard. My, my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a crowd, company of evildoers encircles me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots if you know anything about the crucifixion of jesus you see how this passage would have been vividly recalled by his followers as these events actually came to pass but you know there's more There's there's so much more. If Luke is right and Jesus told them everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets, then that means he would have spoken about. It, it, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Zechariah nine nine. His enemies' anger against him, Psalm two one through three. The way his disciples would desert him, Zechariah thirteen seven. That he would be betrayed for thirty pieces of silver, Zechariah eleven twelve. That he would be lifted up as he was crucified, In Numbers twenty one eight. That his bones would not be broken, Exodus twelve forty six. That he would be given vinegar. To drink, that his side would be pierced, that though his grave would be assigned among the wicked men, he would be actually buried in the tomb of a rich man, that he would rise victorious over death, that he would descend to a place of honor at the Father's right hand. And one of the most significant things, that he was the fulfillment. Of the whole sacrificial system. That's what the author of Hebrews goes to great lengths to help us understand, Hebrews 9 9. According to this arrangement, speaking of the old system, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The sacrifices that were made through the centuries by the Jewish priests for the sins of the people, they were no longer necessary. No longer necessary since Jesus' once and for all sacrifice was made. That's because it was the ultimate sacrifice. These are the kind of things that Jesus would have taken the time to make sure that his disciples understood. Now, you would think with all of this knowledge that there would be an anticipation of what was coming. Sacrifice? We know what it looks like for, for the priest to sacrifice. Jesus is going to be sacrificed? You'd think that they would have been quaking in their boots or, or their sandals. But not Jesus. Luke tells us in Luke 9:51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And that's what we see in Mark chapter 10, verse 32. He's out there. He's ahead of all his followers, all those worrisome disciples. And he's blazing the trail. He's pressing on toward the goal. As the second hand ticks around the clock, And we look out and we see what's happening in our world. And we see it seems like the sky is getting darker and darker and darker. Each new day, the world seems to be plagued with more sadness and more danger and more hate and more disorder and more hostility towards people who are trying to hang on to faith in Jesus. As we march to the end, unto the breach, where are you at? Do the things that God has revealed in his word about the days that lie ahead, do those lead you to trust and hope, or do you find yourself becoming increasingly consumed with fear? Do you find yourself preoccupied with the here and the now, what you might lose, how difficult life might become, what freedoms might be taken away whether or not you're going to keep your health or, or, or your finances maybe are at risk or are God's kingdom purposes moving to the forefront of your mind, moving you to march forward even in dark days with optimism, with enthusiasm because you know the end of the story. It wasn't just the Old Testament prophecy that gave Jesus insight into what was coming. Throughout his ministry, Jesus had proven again and again and again that he didn't just have a knack for predicting what was going to come. He actually knew what was going to come. He knew the future. And he also knew things that were just beyond people's ability to, to know. He knew what was going on in people's hearts, John 2, 24. He knew the, the um, precise location of where Peter would find a fish. you remember the story? A fish with a coin in its mouth, Matthew 17, 27. He knew that a woman he had just met had had five husbands, John 4, 18. He knew where his disciples would find a colt. And he told them exactly what its owners would say in Luke 19.30. And just like he he knew where they would find the man uh, and what the man would be doing who would lend them the room where they would eat the last supper. And he knew that Jerusalem was on its way to destruction in 40 years. But what takes the cake over all of these things is that Jesus knew in detail the events that would transpire in relation to his death. Marching on towards Jerusalem, Jesus calls his 12 close to him. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, he says. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. After three days he will rise. Notice several different things here. First of all, everyone knew that they were going up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. That's why they're making this trip. That's the meal that goes all the way back in Israelite history to to its captivity in Egypt where God made war on Pharaoh to set his people free. You remember this? You may recall that there was one final plague, the plague of death and God was going to slay every firstborn male child. The only way for them to be spared was for a lamb to be sacrificed and his blood smeared across doorposts, and then death would pass over. Jesus' disciples, they were well aware of that event. They knew what Passover was about. What they didn't yet completely understand was that Jesus was marching into Jerusalem to become the once and for all sacrificial lamb whose blood, if applied to their lives in faith, would save them from eternal punishment. Secondly, notice this. He knew that he was going to be delivered over jesus knew that he was going to be betrayed by one of his own and delivered into the hands of the jewish authorities third jesus knew the outcome of the ridiculous unjust trials that he was going to face he knew that the jews would do all that they could to find him guilty and to condemn him to death and then that they would hand him over to these Gentiles, to, to Pilate and Herod, so that their wishes could actually be carried out. Over the years, we've seen uh, ridiculous trials, haven't we? We've seen justice just thrown out the window. We've seen all sorts of things happen, and it's, and it's despicable, but Jesus' trials, they're the worst of the worst. wouldn't be truth and justice that would rule the day. It would be Fear and pride and jealousy and hate and downright evil. And yet Jesus marches on. Fourth, Jesus knew he was going to be mocked and spit upon. We've seen it in the movies. Maybe you've even experienced it yourself when someone who is, is upright and dignified and deserving of all the respect... And they're the ones who are laughed at, and they're slapped around, and they're ridiculed, maybe even spit upon. Well, here's the one who deserves more respect and more honor than anyone else in existence. Here's the one who is holy. Here's the one who has no beginning and no end, who is all-powerful, all sovereign and in whom whom there's not the slightest hint of sinfulness and he's the one getting mocked. He's the one getting spit on. He would get it from those who took him into custody. He would get it from the members of the Sanhedrin. He would get it from Herod and Herod's soldiers, from Pilate's soldiers, from the people that were sneering at him as he hung up on the cross And even from one of these low-life criminals that hung next to him, he knew what was coming, and yet he marched on. Fifth, Jesus knew he was going to be flogged. Even before it happened, Jesus was all too familiar with the cat of nine tails and just how many pieces of glass... and and, and bone and rock and metal and what their shapes and their sizes were and exactly what they would do to every single fiber of his body before they even sailed through the air and made contact with his delicate skin. He knew the precise details of the horrifying, inhumane, and humiliating death that lay before him even before it happened. Frederick Farrar, uh, English clerk, Church of England back in the 1800s, he wrote this. For indeed, a death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of horrible and ghastly. Dizziness, cramps, thirst, starvation, sleepiness, traumatic fever, tetanus, publicity of shame, long continuance of torment, horror. Or anticipation, mortification of untended wounds, all intensified just up to the point at which they can be endured at all, but all stopping just short of the point which would give to the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. The unnatural position made every movement painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. The wounds inflamed by exposure gradually gained green. The arteries, especially of the head and the stomach, became swollen and oppressed with surcharged blood. And while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pain of a burning and raging thirst. And all of the physical complications caused an internal excitement. And anxiety, which made the prospect of death itself, of death, awful unknown enemy at whose approach man usually shudders most, bear the aspect of a delicious and exquisite release. Yes, Jesus knew what was coming, and yet he marched on toward Jerusalem. My friends, you and I are marching. We're marching. Whether we know it or not, whether we are willing or not, we are marching forward to the end. With Christ's death and resurrection in the rearview mirror, there is yet another monumental event ahead of us. His return. Jesus said in Revelation 22, the very last chapter of the Bible, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. That day is coming. The question is, will we be ready? If you've not yet placed your trust in Jesus Christ. If you haven't confessed that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness and trusted in in what Jesus Christ did on that cross by taking your sins upon himself, taking the punishment that you deserve that a way might be made for you to be forgiven and set right with God, then you need to do that right now. And you can do that right now by simply voicing in the quiet of your heart, Lord God, I need you. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I have made myself your enemy. But thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he took my place, died the death that I deserved on my behalf, Thank you that he rose from the dead, proving that he accomplished what he set out to accomplish. And that by simply trusting in him, I can be washed clean. I can be forgiven. I can be made right with you. If you haven't done that, would you do that now? Even if you're not in this room, even if you're just listening to this or watching it online, Now is the time to place your trust in Jesus. And for those of us who are already trusting in Jesus, what difference does this knowledge make as we live our lives right now? Colossians 3 says to us, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. My friends, if you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ, then you must recognize that you are on a journey towards something far bigger, far better, far more important than this life. There is coming a day of reckoning, the day of destiny, the day that marks the, the end of hope the end of chances, the end of opportunity for those around you to be made right with their maker. And it's also the day where you and I enter into an eternity that is, makes all of this just seem like a vapor. It's just vanishing into thin air. Set your mind on things above. Fix your eyes and your attention. Everything that you've got on that day, just like as they were traveling up to Jerusalem and all the other cares fade away and everything is zeroing in on what is coming. Oh my gosh, what has Jesus been talking about is going to happen in Jerusalem. Whoa, this is really big. Let your thoughts, let your focus be consumed with what is coming and the value of all the other things fade into insignificance and unimportance compared to this. Throughout history, and I think especially in our day, there exists the temptation for those who have placed their trust in Christ to zero in on inconsequential, fleeting cares of this world. And we let them define us we let them divide us and cripple us from being about our father's business and we become consumed with the state of our finances and we become consumed with policies of temporal governments and they're here one day and they're gone the next with foods that we think are going to be good for our bodies or bad for our bodies with mortgage rates, with retirement plans, with face masks, with vaccines, with, with whether or not somebody notices us or looks at us funny, made us feel uncomfortable or offended me. I can remember years ago when Melissa was pregnant with our first child, I was at church and a lady cornered me and she was interrogating me and lecturing me about whether or not my wife was going to breastfeed our daughter. I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> Not long after that, it was, well, are you going you gonna to vaccinate your child? Well, you know what all these vaccines are responsible for, A, B, C, and D, and X, Y, and Z. Years passed. I was bombarded with questions about my political affiliation, what news source I listened to, What I think about all of this virus stuff. Have you been asked these kind of questions? Do these things really matter? Yeah, they do. They do. We're not saying that only the spiritual matters and and matter doesn't matter. No, no, no. God created this world. It does matter. But in comparison to where Christ is taking us and what he has called us to do doesn't compare. Never forget the timeless words of J.C. Ryle. We've reminded ourselves of them before. Health is a good thing. It is a good thing. Sickness is far better if it leads us to God. God, who is sovereign, could have all of us perfectly healthy. But I believe that he's allowing us not to be so that our attention might be directed to him and we might find Jesus to be our one and only hope. Christians, don't lose sight of the fact that you are marching towards the end. Unto the breach, my friends. This is real. Jesus wasn't talking fairy tales when he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He wasn't talking make-believe when he said, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. just like he revealed to his disciples what was coming. He told us what lies ahead that we might be marching towards it with confidence in him. So I present to you this sacred challenge. As you look at all that's going around you, going on around you, ask yourself, What difference all of this makes? Does it change the way you think and the way you talk and the things that you do? And then I challenge all of us, including myself, and I need this. Set your sights on things that are eternal and let that impact Everything, when you're standing there, you're talking to people, you're not sure if they know Jesus, may your thoughts just be absolutely preoccupied with how you might be able to point them to their one and only hope. When you see something that you don't agree with on the news, it looks like things are going dark here, be praying for the souls of those who are delivering it and even for the ones who are making the news. When you speak with other Christians, may you be more concerned with the condition of their heart, with the war that they are daily waging against personal sin, and the strides that they are making towards spiritual growth more focused on those things. May our conversations be more about those things rather than their politics or their health decisions or anything else that has no lasting value. Some have asked in recent days whether or not I'm a Republican or a Democrat. Let's set the record straight. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian who only by the grace of God looks to his word, seeks him in prayer, that I might live and make decisions and even determine the way I'm going to vote in a way that honors him. This is not my home. It is If you have placed your trust in Christ, this is not your home, amen? Not your home. We're moving onward, and Christ, our Savior, is returning for us. He's gone before us. He prepared a place for us, and that is where we are going. We are marching towards the end, but we know the end is actually just the beginning. Unto the breach, my friends, let's abandon fear. Let's abandon anxiety. Let's cast off anything that weighs us down. Any sin, any fi- fixations with fleeting concerns, and let's press on toward the end. It's near. Can you feel it? It's near. Like Jesus, let's let the mission that we have been given lead us boldly, even into harm's way, wherever, whatever lies ahead, for the glory of God and the good. Of his people. Lord, we come before you and we just confess that we are broken, we are fragile, we are needy people, Lord, who need you desperately. We were lost in utter darkness, fumbling around left and right, chasing after this, chasing after that, thinking this was going to help us, this was going to help us. Nothing helps, Lord, but you. You are our one and only hope. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what he did on the cross for us. The true treasure might be found. And that is you.